from Green Biz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Lauren Hepler here in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, a data revolution coming for your supply chain, Silicon Valley governments line up to buy their own power, and the future of ranchers, farmers, and fishermen. We can dig it this week on 350. I'm senior writer Lauren Hepler holding it down here in downtown Oakland, California, while our leader extraordinaire Joel McCower is off on some well-deserved European adventures. But not to worry, we have a special co-host this week. Our senior writer, Heather Clancy, has also joined us from the East Coast. How's it going, Heather? Hello there. Thanks for stepping in. No worries. So how are things uh, in in your world? New Jersey is foggy. It's foggy here, too. Small world. (laughs) You can deal with that. Well, we've got a packed show today. We're going to be covering food, data, uh, supply chains, all kinds of stuff. So let's jump right into it with the Week in Review. No matter where you are, it's been hard to escape election news. But luckily for us this week, our editor-at-large, David Crane, uh, who is the Senior Operating Executive with Pegasus Capital Advisors, formerly the CEO of NRG Energy, weighed in with his latest column headlined, What Are You Doing in the Next Four Weeks? Um, and so, yeah, so David sort of related to all of us uh, <laughs> that uh, election season is here. It's hard to avoid. Um, but then he also gave sort of the businessman's perspective um, on Trump, etc. It it was interesting. He noted, uh, as a businessman, I'm not particularly drawn to those who self... I am particularly drawn to those who self-made their billions by building their own businesses. Uh, So maybe a little dig there. uh, But I think it's definitely interesting to, to think about sort of how Trump's businessman persona plays into this election. Yeah. I mean, think one of the things that we were discussing, the staff was discussing earlier this week, was the fact that um, if you're on the coasts of the country, you might have a very different view of this the whole election than the people in the middle of the country. Um, for me, it, the it's a very different picture than in, in Oakland, where you guys are in Oakland. Um, the thing that, that's most interesting to me about Crane's story this week was the fact that he was advocating um, others to really start thinking about where this election might end, end us up, if you will. And and actually, for me, I kind of walked away from it thinking that the fact that so many sustainability managers and executives and companies right now are making this just part of their business argument, you know, energy. Energy is a cost of business. People aren't talking about it as clean versus they're talking, they're making the economic argument. And I think that's a very wise strategy, given the fact that we have no idea where we're going to end up. We know that if we end up with the Trump plan, there is no plan. So the fact that, that 
companies are really focusing focusing on this as an economic argument is really, I think, very smart and actually kind of prescient. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah, it's a good point. And I, like mm-hmm. you said, sort of you can get in the, the coastal bubble. Definitely a little different yeah. when I call my family members back home in the heartland in Ohio. Um, so be curious to see how that turns out. But uh, David also does weigh in on something that I think a lot of people are thinking about, which is sort of the role third parties will or won't play in this election. Mm-hmm. Um, so all things we're going to see play out in what three and a half weeks now it's coming down to the wire Uh, I also think one thing that that um, came up in the debate this week I think the whole clean coal discussion is going to start up again right the Obama administration has probably put like what 3.4 billion into this technology and it really hasn't gone anywhere but apparently certain elements um, think it's important so I think that uh, we better get ready for a whole new wave of discussion around that topic. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting. I, I think some, that concept translated to some mm. local reporting that I did this week in Oakland. Uh, the story was called Why Silicon Valley Governments Are Lining Up to Buy Their Own Power. Uh, and that was looking at the role that county governments in this case, but also, as we know, cities increasingly thinking about their climate footprints, the role that they can play in changing uh, a region's energy mix. So in the San Francisco Bay Area, we're starting to see a, a trend, really. I mean, it's it's not just one or two places. San Francisco County, Alameda County was the most recent, uh, which is the home of Oakland, and then also San Mateo County, which is the home of Facebook. Lots of big companies south of San Francisco, and as well as the Uh, Sonoma and Marin counties up towards Napa Valley wine country, they've all given the green light to begin the process of creating new energy boards to buy a mix of fossil fuel and renewable energy for the region, uh, with the goal obviously being to work towards uh, aggressive renewable energy targets. In the case of Alameda, the home of Oakland, uh, the county has set a preliminary goal of reaching 50% renewable energy by 2030. Um, There is a term for all of this. It's it's technically called community choice Ooh. aggregation, which is, again, this idea of creating a new public entity to procure power instead of relying on the local utility to do all of that. Uh, but the utility, in this case, Pacific Gas and Electric, will still be around for transmission and billing. So sort of an interesting blend of models. I'm sure you've looked at some of these permutations and energy business models and all the reporting you do on renewables. Well, I do, but it, it, again... California tends to take the lead in sort of innovating. I'm curious, as far as a policy shift, what do the governments have to do in order to make this happen? It's interesting. So it starts at the county level in this case. And they've, I think for more than a year, they've spent a million dollars already just sort of scoping out. This is, I'm talking about Alameda County, home of Oakland, home of Tesla. So a kind of a hub for some of this stuff. Uh, so they spent the last year sort of scoping out what would it look like to create this new um, county spinoff energy group. Uh, it has a wonky name. I think it's like a, a joint energy. Uh, I can't even mm-hmm. remember, but you, you know, those fun bureaucratic names. Um, so that would be seated early next year. But the really interesting part is that only uh, a handful of people, uh, a couple, well, in California's case, a couple tens of thousands of people live in the county, so unincorporated areas, and the county can directly decide sort of their energy mix. The interesting part becomes if the county can get cities to buy in. So Oakland is one that's very active in this conversation. Uh, Is Oakland willing to have their ratepayers 
join up with this county plan and the uh, 10 plus other cities in the county? That's sort of the Mm -hmm. question, how the puzzle pieces come together. Yeah. You know, from my perspective, on the East Coast and where I am in, in New Jersey, part of my county doesn't even use the same utility. So my right, my right. friends in in the next town use a completely different utility. So I think uh, you know when you look at geographic spread, how that might play out in other places, I think is very convoluted. Um, you know, you you'd really have to take take a very I get well, I mean countywide approach, but that's going to require dealing with more than one utility over in other parts of the country. Definitely. And I mean, obviously, really curious to see how the utilities respond to this. I was checking out PG&E's website does now have uh, a, an entire page about community choice aggregation. There's some questions about um, how ratepayers may be able to opt out. And then, of course, if these systems do get to scale, everybody's going to be watching prices. Are those going up? Uh, are they staying the same? Uh, Alameda County right now is projecting a slight drop 1% to 9% by creating their own energy board. Um, but I'm, I'm sure that's something that we'll continue to be watching closely. Well, and, and plus, I think the other wild card is technology. So in order to do that sort of thing, you're going to need services that that provide that intelligence, if you if you will. So I think that that will require investments on the part of the utilities and in services that help offer that information. Definitely. And when we're talking about counties now, but we also had a a good piece this week. It it was actually written as a letter from Mm -hmm. Emily Weir, who's a master's candidate at the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. And it was a letter to mayors. The headline was, Dear Mayors, Connect Sustainable Development to Climate Action. And Emily drilled down into, we've all heard the the numbers by 2015, more than 70% of the global population is expected to live in cities. Uh, This sort of this overarching transition from rural to urban been living. Uh, but Emily uh, drilled in on the UN Sustainable Development Goal uh, ratified last year in New York. She d- drilled into number 11, which deals with sustainable cities and communities and thinking about the need for cities to create space for economic and social transitions, uh, sort of uh, thinking about cities as the petri dish for how we're going to see a lot of climate action playing out in the coming years. Yeah, again, the cities, this is not exactly a new argument. Um, I mean, it's, I think the, the it's a renewed argument, though, if you will. Definitely. Um, the, the, the fact that cities are contributing, what, 75% of our carbon emissions is, yeah. is something we cannot ignore. Um, but it, it's been so focused on the... You know the elite elements, if you will, in the past. That I think again, it goes back to the argument that if you just look at development and economic growth and and consider these as part of that, and not put it aside and make it um, an, an argument for green necessarily, but for sustainable, I think that that's a, a wise thing to do. It also makes the uh, the case for how you you cost these things out um, a little troubling. But I think that one of our other pieces this week focused on that, if you will, the infrastructure and how you cost cost analyze that. We use tools of the past, but that maybe those won't work anymore. I mean, we had another great story this week on on how to rethink 
making that financial argument. Definitely. There's the financial argument. And another thread we're hearing more about as it relates to cities is resilience. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, we've all heard that uh, groups like 100 Resilient Cities that spin off of the Rockefeller Foundation uh, are actually installing sort of chief resilience officers in cities to think about how things like sea level rise and emissions come together with maybe long-term social stressors, like unaffordable housing is a big one out where we are. Mm -hmm. Um, But it was interesting. I actually just saw a new video because one area where I think the resilience argument really intersects is with security. Uh, Joel's last book, Mm -hmm. uh, New Grand Strategy, deals with sort of thinking about climate as a threat to global stability. And there's a Pentagon video that actually just came out today, I think, through a Freedom of Information Act request. Um, The Intercept published it. Uh, But it it talks about this sort of potentially dystopian scenario for cities, um, where uh, obviously some of that could be related to class tension, political tension, but you also do have sort of the physical stressors of climate change that that could potentially be be wreaking havoc in cities. So it's not something to sort of take lightly or theorize about. And I think uh, it's definitely a prescient uh, point to be, as you said, renewing now. I think the the troubling thing is that the existing cities will probably have a really hard time doing some of this because the fact is the stuff is in place. Um, how, how eager are you to have your road dug up in order to have new infrastructure put in place, to put new telephone poles, to put new utilities in place. The place where this will happen most quickly, I think, will be in emerging economies where they don't have as much infrastructure, but they can really think through how they put this these, these pieces um, in place to make for sustainable development. So um, it, it's kind of like when the wireless, the wireless communications networks leapfrogged in Europe and and got ahead so much more quickly because here in the United States, we didn't want to make those investments. People were reluctant to upheave what there, what was there. So, I mean, so the, the good news is this, the thinking is going on. The bad news is that people don't like to have their worlds dug up. (laughs) Right. Right. And I agree that I'm definitely curious to watch how some of these emerging mega cities that have the land and that are building from the ground up in, in Asia, South America, um, Africa, how, how we'll see them evolve in terms of their energy systems and, and resilience. And we have to to call them on the carpet, right? I think there was a, a story this week on um, how certain elements were, were supporting, um, what was it, the, the uh, rail system in Korea? Mm-hmm. And um, people were inflating the costs out of control to yeah, just make it look a little better or whatever. And, and, and the people that were developing the project um, obviously were, were not being as transparent as they could have been. Yeah, definitely. And, and like you said, there are sort of specific areas to focus on when it comes to thinking about this big idea of cities. And uh, I think you alluded to this also. We had a, a great piece looking at sort of the transportation role in this. It was actually authored by Emma Stewart, who is the head of sustainability solutions at Autodesk. Her piece was to build the future, change these stone wheels on a Tesla. <laughs> uh, so it's a funny headline, but she's really talking about uh, prioritizing and funding infrastructure projects. Uh, So uh, like you were alluding to, again, sort of thinking about how you do the cost benefit analysis on infrastructure, 
making sure that you're thinking through what the costs are going to be and being transparent in how those costs are calculated. Um, but, but what did you make of that piece, Heather? Well, certainly Autodesk, one of the things that, that they can help people do is, is model those costs in a better way with their prototyping tools. I found it fascinating that the argument really is that why are we using centuries old cost justifications to, to evaluate these projects? I mean, how can you possibly figure out the impact of predictive maintenance, right? If a bridge can tell you when it needs to be fixed, we, how, can you, how can you estimate the, the savings of that? It, it's really difficult. You have to kind of make up, okay, this, this person um, would have had to go out and check it out. And then um, they would have to close the road down. What's the impact of that? Uh, the crews, when do they do it? In the middle of the night, over time, you know, and so forth. And it's very difficult to justify some of these futuristic approaches because we just we just don't know they, they aren't in place now it's 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 we're dealing the we call this the fourth industrial revolution in the technology world the, the the role of sensors and so forth and the fact is you just don't know what the impact will be and i think it's a really it's a good uh, move on autodesk part they have what the they're working with the impact infrastructure organization mm-hmm. Um, to to come up with new tools for this, um, specifically for building. I think buildings is the first tool, but the you know again it 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 just seems outdated, outmoded to use these these uh, traditional cost costing <laughs> exercises in order to figure this out. And of course, the the stakeholders you'd have to be convincing of the merits of some of these new evaluation tools are familiar financiers like J.P. Morgan, mm-hmm. BlackRock, Moody's. So thinking about sort of how you make the case to Wall Street is, is interesting when you're talking about the the trillions of dollars that flow through global mm-hmm. financial markets. Um, not super dissimilar from the conversations going on around. Uh, where the capital should come from for investing in renewable energy infrastructure. Um, but again, one of these areas where we're going to seem very likely we're going to continue to see innovation and in business models uh, and, and sort of variation in how people are, are making the case for capital to, to flow towards some of these things. Yeah, but the, the Black Rocks and the JP Morgans of the world are very lis- are very willing to listen to those arguments. They want projects that, that meet these environmental, social, and, and sort of risk, risk avoidance metrics. So they're, they're open-minded. That's the good news. It's a good time for this. Well, well, we'll leave on a good news note and shift gears to supply chains. We're going to switch gears now and talk 
food. Joining us now is Miriam Horn, who is a best-selling author and writer for the Environmental Defense Fund. Her new book is Rancher, Farmer, Fisherman, Conservation Heroes of the American Heartland, and it is out now. Miriam is joining us from New York. How's it going, Miriam? It's great. Thanks for having me. Definitely. So let's start with the basics. Uh, Was there some sort of personal connection? Why was it important for you to write this book now? Um, Well, there is a personal connection. I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area and spent a ton of time when I was a kid on a farm in the Central Valley uh, in Winters, California, on the western edge of the valley, with a family that all the way back in the 60s were already unbelievably farsighted about the impact of agriculture on the land and the obligation to try to be water efficient and protective of wildlife and protective of the rivers that cross their land. And so they were my teachers from the very beginning. And they're not they're not small farmers. They farm close to 5,000 acres, uh, their fourth generation. And so they they sort of gave me my first introduction to the idea, first of all, that large-scale food production could be sustainable, but also that the people who live and work on the land know it in a in the deepest possible way and and love it in the deepest possible way. And I kind of had that experience all over again in my twenties. I worked for the U.S. Forest Service in Colorado and what a lot on timber work and also some minerals work. And again, I had this discovery that the that the people who live there and worked, including the loggers and miners and people who are often written off as nothing but hostile to the environment, that in fact had a really deep understanding of our interdependence with these resources and, a, and an ability to make a, a difference because of the, the knowledge they gained working day in and day out on this land. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned your roots in the West, but the book focuses on the area in and around the Mississippi River. So why did this region in particular capture your attention? Well, I got interested in it for a couple of reasons. One, the Mississippi watershed drains 40% of the United States. It's like a giant funnel that that reaches from the Rockies to the Appalachians, and it is where most of our well, most of our history was built, but also where most of our natural resources still reside from the the timber and minerals up in the mountains and the grasslands, the rangelands. Um, through the grain belt and down into the, the Mississippi Delta and the Gulf where most of our fish and birds come from. So um, it's really critical to the future of the American food supply and our natural resources in general. I also was interested because it is, if you look at a map of the watershed, it maps almost perfectly onto red state America. And I knew uh, from my, my work at EDF for 12 years that it's a myth that that conservative Americans are not interested in conservation. I knew that it was both a, a really deeply held American value that it was Ronald Reagan who said, what is a conservative but one who, who conserves? Um, and so I really wanted to kind of push back against this idea that that people didn't, that the only people who care about conservation are people sort of liberal elitists who live on the coast. I wanted to, I intentionally wanted to be in 
the most conservative, most traditional parts of the country. Yeah, and to follow up on that notion of uh, conservatism, and there's an interesting underlying question here with language in the book. I think you're reluctant to use the term environmentalist to describe the individuals in your book. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about that decision? Well, I really wanted to follow their lead, and that, that was sort of a principle throughout, is one of the things that really sets all of these people apart is an, a skill that becomes ever more important, I think, in terms of knowing how to keep a conversation going, even with people that you disagree with, that, that you might have a you know political difference with, or um, that you might have some even some historic animosities to overcome. And what, so, so they are very committed to doing that sort of essential work of democracy, of bridging these divides and working with people very different from yourself. And, and critical to that is avoiding things that are just going to slam the door, that there's no reason to, to walk into conversations that are, are going to instantly put people on guard. And the word environmentalist has gotten loaded enough with enough connotations that it doesn't re sit very easily with them and certainly therefore wouldn't sit very easily with their neighbors. And since, you know, part of the, a big part of the purpose of the book is to try to, to also bridge some of those divides and reach some people that haven't really been brought into this conversation. Um, I just, I really followed the lead of the subjects in the book and they, they're much more at home with words like steward and, and conservationist. Um, it just doesn't, it doesn't come without other baggage. It reminds me a little bit of the work of our sometimes columnist, Peter Bick, uh, his documentary film, Carbon Nation, sort of picks mm -hmm. up some, some similar themes. And I also wanted to ask you more about this conversation around size and sustainability. So the conversation is often polarized between sort of big food, industrial ag, and then extremely small-scale organic locavores, uh, that the corner community garden in a city, things like that. What have you found in your work uh, is actually most important when we think about scale in agriculture? Um, well, I think it's it, there just really isn't a correlation between scale and sustainability. Small farms can be fantastic, um, but so can big farms. And the farm I write in the book is a, is a great example of that. Justin Knopf Farms uh, almost 5,000 acres with his dad and brother in central Kansas. Um, he grows commodity crops like wheat and soy and sorghum. Um, and he, he's not organic. He's not obviously not farming for local markets. So he, you know, he really defies every notion of what a sustainable farmer is, but he's doing really uh, unbelievably wonderful work on his land. He is a, he has shifted all of their acres to no tilling. He, they haven't they haven't plowed any of their acres uh, for close to 20 years. Um, they're doing really intense rotations and cover cropping to introduce a lot of biodiversity. And the and the effect of that is that the the health of his soil, both the carbon content the carbon content of his soil, which had been depleted to almost zero after four generations of his own family farming, they were homesteaders after the Civil War and. And they were always plowing, you know, several times a year, they were plowing these fields and plowing was, was really damaging the microbial ecology in the fields. And it was also allowing all of the carbon and organic matter to be depleted. And, and in less than 20 years, Justin has been able to really turn that around and he's now built the carbon in the soil back up to 
half of native prairie levels and in another another decade or so we'll have it nearly back to the levels of carbon stored in prairie soils he's also his the microbes that live in his soil that play you know absolutely essential roles in life on earth are their health is really rebounded. Um, he's be able to create a lot of habitat by introducing all of this diversity, uh, both in his commercial crops and his cover crops, a lot of habitat for, for grassland birds, for pollinators. Um, he's been able to radically reduce the amount of things like added nitrogen he needs, um, you know, per bushel of wheat. So it, he's just, he and, and, Thousands and thousands of farmers like him. He's, you know, there's a, a no-till conference now in Kansas that attracts 2,000 large-scale farmers from all over the heartland who have made a similar kind of commitment. So there's just huge numbers of farmers out in the heartland showing what large-scale farming really can be in terms of sustainability. Mm-hmm. You have several fascinating individual profiles in the book, and I also wanted to be sure to ask you about sort of the the business perspective, uh, the context here in terms of how markets are evolving, in some cases maybe not evolving as much, to, to keep pace with the conversation around sustainable food. Um, what are you seeing in, in sort of the economic or the business realm? Um, well, there are some really important efforts to to uh, give consumers deeper insight into the source of their food and give them and, you know, really help move us toward things like low carbon farming. Um, and the, the two that I write about in the book, one is from an expected quarter, Whole Foods. Whole Foods has been moving toward labeling of their food. They're, they're moving toward one on produce that is a good, better, best kind of produce that really tries to take account of things like Soil health and greenhouse gas emissions from the farm, things that are, are, um, really the most important things to understand about your food sources if you, if you care about the environment. Um, a more kind of unexpected player in this is Walmart. They have uh, been working with EDF on a sustainable sourcing initiative where they made a public commitment to cut 20 million metric tons of greenhouse gases out of their operations and they as the biggest grocer in America saw that the the most immediate opportunity to achieve that was in their food supply chain and so they have asked companies like Kellogg's and Campbell's that supply them with food in turn to be sure that their grains are sourced from farmers that are taking good care of the soil and reducing their greenhouse gas emissions a lot of that comes from more careful use of nitrogen fertilizer because if you know if nitrogen isn't taken up by the plants it can be released into the atmosphere and is an intensely powerful greenhouse gas so so there is starting to be from the market and from the you know demand and some signals that are that are helping farmers make what are are pretty involved transitions and what about when we look ahead with some of this? We're at an interesting time for innovation. You have uh, the ag tech field, agriculture tech, as well as um, different types of food tech evolving pretty quickly. What are you watching there? Um, well, the the places where I, I was really impressed by what technology was able to do, one is on the farmlands. Um, Justin has the most unbelievable set of data streams coming in when he's out harvesting a wheat field. I went out with him for two 20-hour days of wheat harvest, and 
his tractor is being steered by his GPS system, so he can focus entirely on the, what the weed is looking like to him, what the soil is looking like to him, and then these data streams that are coming both over the the computer in his combine and over his smartphone that tell him everything from the the ambient temperature and humidity so he knows how well the wheat is going to chop because he's he's interested in leaving really good residue on the field to protect the field um, to everything he's done on that square foot of land for the last 10 years, every every crop he's grown on it, everything he's added to it, you know, to market prices. Um, I mean, it's just amazing the, the layering of information that he has that, that allows him to to really be farming to the square foot, even though he's farming 5,000 acres, he, you know, really is able to attend to it meter by meter. And um, the other place that it's really, you know, transforming things is out in the Gulf of Mexico, where the book ends with a, a commercial red snapper fisherman who's been really instrumental in reforming federal fisheries policy um, to stop commercial overfishing and bring bring red snapper back from from the brink really they had been virtually wiped out and they're now roaring back to abundance and and in that case it's things like you know all this underwater um tech, sonar and sort of gopro technology that allows them to see into these invisible worlds beneath the sea but then things like also things like smartphone apps that allow fishermen to do a much more real-time accurate count of the fish that they're pulling in so you can get a much better gauge of of what's actually being caught. Great. Miriam Horn is the author of the new book, Rancher, Farmer, Fisherman, Conservation Heroes of the American Heartland, which in an interesting fact is actually going to be made into a feature documentary. What can you tell us about that, Miriam? Um, well, Discovery uh, optioned the book and we have this amazing team of people working on it now. Um, John Hoffman and, and Susan Frumke, who are Emmy and Academy Award winners, are directing it. And um, and they've been out for several years following the the cowboy in Montana, Dusty Crary, and the my Kansas farmer, and uh, Wayne Warner, this red snapper fisherman, and then a, a, a woman named Sandy Wen, who is an advocate for the shrimping community in in Louisiana, which is really focused on trying to keep those wetlands, those critical wetlands in place where all their fish come from. Um, so they've been following them through every season of the year and they're, they're in post-production now and it will, it will be released, um, to festivals and theaters in the spring and then it will air globally on Discovery in summer 2017. All right. We'll stay tuned for that. Thanks so much, Miriam Horn, for joining us. Thank you.
Speaking of supply chain, Lauren, you wrote a piece that's up this morning, uh, Risk, the Data Revolution and Life Post-Paris for CDP's Supply Chain Program. So I was reading the piece this morning, and the thing that one of the things that struck me was the focus on helping large organizations make their suppliers more more sustainable, right? And so think about how how they're on board with these programs. And we, we've heard a little bit about this, you know, I'm thinking about the past, like Hewlett Packard in its previous guise, not the HPE guise, um, mm-hmm. was really focused on helping its suppliers get more, get more, um, Sustainable, and I and I'll I'll explain what I mean about that in a moment. But but looking at their operations, looking how they use water, looking how they use energy, and so forth, and they had incentives in place to encourage that. And I one of one of the things I took away when I was reading your piece this morning was that this new system that the CDP is looking at could help with more of that. I mean, is that am I am I reading too much into that? No, I think that's definitely, you hit the nail on the head when it comes to incentivizing uh, suppliers to move towards sustainability. So it's all about peer pressure, or in some cases, financial pressure, sort of tying suppliers' performance evaluations directly to how they either have reined in their carbon emissions or their, their water usage. It's an interesting area. And for CDP, obviously formerly known as the Carbon Disclosure Project, the NGO has been releasing annual reports uh, sort of covering their membership big companies like Walmart, Unilever, L'Oreal, the big consumer goods giants we think about when we think about supply chains, frankly. Um, they've been releasing information on that since 2008, And sort of what's new now is that they're going to take that data to the next level, uh, ranking more companies and putting them really head to head to say who is doing the most to engage their suppliers, what sort of incentives are they using. Uh, It's an interesting area. And I think uh, a lot of other sustainability executives will be paying close attention when that comes out in January. Okay. You said the magic word, ranking. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So there's a lot of rankings out there, and and some of them have been criticized in the, in the recent past um, for not being. Yeah, I mean, look, look at Volkswagen, right? Yeah, <laughs> they were one of the most uh, top ranking companies on the Dow Jones Sustainability Index, and clearly they weren't quite as transparent as they should have been. Um, so what what makes this ranking different? Yeah, that Volkswagen is the perfect example of what can go wrong here. Uh, uh, Dow Jones relies on self-reported data and had Volkswagen ranked as basically like one of the foremost sustainable automakers in the world, which obviously did not look good when it came out that they were cheating emissions regulations around the world um, and they were pulled from the list. So uh, that's definitely a cautionary tale and what can go wrong. I think CDP's approach and others who are looking at supply chains is interesting because they don't uh, go directly to the public-facing brand that we're familiar with. It's not asking Walmart what their suppliers are doing. It's getting data from the, you know, thousand or hundreds of suppliers that make up the bulk of Walmart's value chain and asking them directly what they're doing. So I think in some ways it's peeling back a layer of that onion on these crazy complex global supply chains and sort of going to the source 
That being said, though, one thing I was asking Dexter Galvin, who's the head of supply chain for CDP, was sort of how far do you go with that? I think he called it sort of a cascading effect where you can go to tier one suppliers, tier two, tier Mm -hmm. three. Um, Right now it is focused on the larger suppliers, which in and of themselves can be billion dollar entities. Uh, But I'm most curious if if we're going to see... Uh, efforts to go deeper into the supply chain. Heather, I know you've written about things that can often be embedded uh, at the ground level, like conflict minerals that regulators are starting to apply more scrutiny to. So here's Dexter Galvin talking about CDP's forthcoming supplier ranking. We were launching the first list of leading companies that have been engaging their supply chains. Um, So what we're looking at in this first year is the breadth and depth of a company's engagement with their supply chain. Well, in the first instance, whether they are indeed engaging their suppliers or not, and that's the key thing. Um, so far too few, I think it was 27% of companies responding to our request last were doing anything at all with their supply chain, which is ridiculous when you think that four times average company's emissions actually in their supply chain. So that's just totally unacceptable mm-hmm. by any standard. Um, right. So what we want to do is, first of all, catalyze the fact that companies need to engage more with their supply chains. And then the second thing is to assess the breadth and depth of that engagement. So with the methodo- methodology that we released um, and being um, the carbon disclosure project of old CDP, of course, now, but disclosure was our middle name. And um, and so we would obviously publish our methodology very clearly and well in advance so that companies can understand how they're going to be assessed. But things we're looking at is uh, whether companies are engaging their suppliers, whether they have their buyers involved, for example, whether their buyers are incentivized to do this. Um, whether they have data on their suppliers, uh, whether they have targets for supply chain uh, emissions reductions, for example, um, and what the sort of governance structure is in place. Um, So it's a really uh, holistic view of what companies are doing to manage emissions in their supply chains and whether they're doing it. Um, This methodology will provide a framework for companies that don't know what to do and are really thinking about oh, we need to start thinking about engaging our suppliers soon. So what should we put in place in our own operations to do that? It will be systems agnostic. If you're engaging your suppliers uh, through a bunch of spreadsheets, that's still great. Whatever way you're doing it, we want to see that you're doing it. That's, that's the key for us is to really drive more companies to do it, help them understand how that what best practice is. We believe we know what best practice is because we and we were there at the very beginning. So we've been working with the members over the years and we've been able to really garner what best practice is and, and that understanding of best practice has gone into the development in the context of emissions, obviously with the Paris Agreement coming into effect, it's going to be interesting to see if there's any push to to dig down deeper into supply chains and sort of root out those emissions um, further back. 4,000 suppliers, right? That was another metric in your story, um, are disclosing information. This is another example of why data services, right? And and automated data services and collection um, options are gonna be super important because this is a lot of information. Right. So unless you have sensors or 
um, things automating the the collection of this information and then the analysis of this. Um, there's just I don't I don't know how you're going to possibly do all this analysis, right? <laughs> Yeah, and it seems like we're definitely in sort of a transitional phase right now. We hear a lot about sort of survey fatigue where people are manually filling out Mm -hmm. surveys from several different rankings authorities or disclosure groups like CDP uh, and then sending them back. Dexter Galvin, uh, again with CDP, did tell me that his group is in the process of their own technology revamp where they'll be looking um, to implement sort of interactive online platforms to to get a lot of this data but what he said was we're moving into an era of more real-time data on what suppliers are doing Uh, and here's a little taste of what he sees coming down the pike blockchain increased digitalization of supply chains i think that's absolutely a trend i think we're we're moving into an era of more real-time data on what suppliers are doing and it's all about more and better data to help us make decisions. And um, we've always believed that if you don't measure, you can't manage. And we're very happy to see this trend towards more effective data gathering and understanding. And so, of course, here uh, we're, we're talking a lot about uh, data analytics and sort of how you measure the efficiency of a factory and things like that. Um, but another sort of parallel world of innovation is happening. Heather, you alluded to one of them, which is sort of this whole sensor-based world of uh, traceability and transparency, which is really interesting. Um, there's also sort of, from the infrastructure perspective, questions about how factories are going to be able to evolve to incorporate renewables um, or uh, cut down on waste in a major way, sort of the idea of a net zero factory. Mm -hmm. So lots of different threads here. Yeah, I mean, Apple's been talking about that, right? They that was one of their big things about a month ago was they're going to start helping their own suppliers be more sustainable. Um, Foxconn being one of them. and, And they're the course if you don't know that name that it's the one that makes the iphone it's a pretty big uh, influential company definitely big big company and another that reminds me so foxconn is in china um and dexter said cdp right now interestingly a lot of the suppliers they look at are based in north america um, (laughs) which we we keep hearing about manufacturing being dead or dying in north america um there are still he said uh lots of companies are at least headquartered in north america perhaps have facilities elsewhere uh china is another big market as well as brazil um so we'll be curious to see if cdp and others start to expand that global purview because um when you look at i think we wrote a story a couple months back about Marks and Spencer, um, an individual company sort of mapping their supply chain. It was really crazy when I was looking at that map. It's just like everywhere you can possibly imagine you're in Morocco, uh, Bangladesh, just sort of almost every continent, uh, lots of uh, countries Mm -hmm. of different sizes. So to really wrap your head around, even when we're thinking about thousands of suppliers handing over their data, it's orders of magnitude more than that that are really in play. So again, how do, does technology help us break through that? How, how do you sort of wrap your arms around that?
Well, that about does it for this special edition of Green Biz 350. I want to thank our senior writer, Heather Clancy, for stepping in. You are very welcome. (laughs) All right. Well, we'll stay tuned for for many more stories coming in the next couple of weeks and the return of Joel. Uh, But in the meantime, if you have a question, a comment, or even a pitch for our next episode, send us an email at 350 at greenbiz.com. You can also stay up to date with the latest news in sustainable business by signing up for our Green Buzz and Verge weekly newsletters. Just go to greenbiz.com. And if you haven't already, take a second to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or wherever else you listen to your audio. From all of us here at Green Biz Group, thanks for listening and have a great day. <laughs> <laughs>